0: So, hey,
1: everybody. Welcome to Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement-building show. I'm your host, Eric Mann. And we certainly have Voices from the Frontlines today, as we do every week. First, you'll be listening to a real frontline fight at the Los Angeles MTA, led by Channing Martinez and Barbara Lott-Holland and myself of the Bus Riders Union and the Strategy Center. We were trying to introduce a motion, which we did, that the MTA must cease and desist all of its anti-Black activity. Spoiler alert, the anti-Black MTA did not do what we said, but we're very optimistic about the campaign and you'll hear from Channing and Barbara, myself, very soon all about it. Then we have some phenomenal news which is if you go back on the previous podcasts, listen to Mike Cannon, UAWD, Uniting All Workers for Democracy, in the United Auto Workers. Today, we're going to be having a conversation with Scott Holderson and, again, Mike Cannon and myself about this amazing victory that they won in a referendum that now the United Auto Workers Workers' workers have the right to directly elect their national officers. We will also be hearing from Ernesto Arce with his by now terrific South Central Third World News. And throughout, you'll hear Nina Simone singing, I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. So that's a show we are looking forward to listening Check us out at voicesfronthefrontlines.com and you can hear us then on SoundCloud. We welcome comments at Eric at VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com.
0: I wish I could say all the things that I should say. Say them loud, say them clear for the whole round world to hear. I wish I could share all the love that's in my heart remove all the bars that keep us apart i wish you could know what it means to be me then you'd see and agree that every
1: So hey everybody, this is Eric Mann, the host of Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement-building show. Last Thursday, December 2nd, there was a major showdown between the Bus Riders Union and our allies on one side, including Black Lives Matter, and the Los Angeles MTA on the other. As always, we were fighting for the rights of 500,000 bus riders, who are 20% Black, 55% Latino, 60% women, and 85% profoundly, profoundly low income, against a group of liberal Democrats who represent not just corporate interests, but anti-Black and anti-Latino interests, sadly, including by their votes, some of the Black and Latinx board members as well. We had very high hopes yesterday and some of those were accomplished, but the results from the board were profoundly discouraging. We had come with a motion based on complete documentation, which you can get on our website, where it says the bus regime calls on the MTA to cease and desist all of its anti-Black policies. We pointed out that based on the cooperation with the CEO, the new CEO, Stephanie Wiggins, who had provided the data to us, that the data was outrageously anti-black. And as we explained to her, reaching the level, the formal level of genocide as defined by the United Nations statutes on genocide. That is to say, as an example, that Black people representing only 8% of the population of the city, 19% of MTA riders itself being reflective, because that means that Black people are transit dependent, have no money to buy a car, are receiving 50, 53, 60, and 65% in different categories of tickets and arrests for fare evasion, and the violation of what we call the Black Codes, which are those codes on the wall of the trains and buses that say, Black people, if you eat, if you drink, if you put your feet on the floor, put the foot on the chair, if you're loud or quiet, if we don't like your odor or your behavior, we will lock you up, as we did the freed slaves. It's serious that we call them the black codes. So what happened yesterday? Well, we went in with a tremendous amount of hope. We had an excellent meeting with CEO Stephanie Wiggins, with Barbara Lott-Holland, Channing Channing Martinez, and myself, in which, after looking at the outrageous anti-black data of arrests and tickets, She made a commitment to us that in her CEO's report, she would indicate to the board that there is an anti-black problem, even if he simply said the data reflects an anti-black problem. That's what she agreed to say. She did not agree to do anything, although we discussed certain things. We asked her to suspend the enforcement of all fares altogether. Instead, no, they're gonna start collecting them again in a month. We asked her to stop the enforcement of all the black codes. She said, well, the Inspector General has some power in that, which we later found out was not true because that could be given back to the CEO. So the only commitment she made is to acknowledge the problem. And that to us was an enormous victory. Because of the CEO, yes, a black woman CEO says, we have an anti-black problem. We knew that the whole floodgates would open up. And so did they. Then we met with the office of Mike Bonin. And he agreed, through his staff person, to recognize the BRU motion and to recognize the bus riders' youth. That's all they said. and. They kept coming up with different ideas. And I said, listen, if you don't call it anti-black, and if you don't call it systematic, then all your efforts to prove this and prove that without confronting the anti-blackness is anti-black. I got the indication that Mike Bonin, who's been a very good guy with us, would simply say, I acknowledge the Bus Riders Union motion, and I'm concerned about it. Note how low we set this bar. We then also met through emails and conversation with the office of Supervisor Hilda Solis, who has not been meeting with us, told her that she was working against free public transportation and she had to acknowledge anti-blackness. We received no such commitment but we did receive a commitment to have a meeting with the supervisor. I report this because as an organizer, you have to be very honest with what people tell you and not read into it what they didn't tell you. That's not fair to them. On the other hand, when somebody makes a commitment to us, I know when a commitment was made. And CEO Stephanie Wiggins made a commitment to me and Barbara and Channing that she would acknowledge a problem of anti-blackness to this board and say the word anti-blackness. In our meeting with us, she said, we have an anti-black problem. Can we look at this data and not see if 63% of the people getting one type of ticket, 57% another type of ticket are all black. We have an anti-black problem. So we were very optimistic going into the board now because we felt once one person, Mike Bonin, Holly Mitchell, or CEO Stephanie Wiggins, just said the word anti-black. We knew our campaign was gonna win. And Barbara, what was the term you used about
2: why they didn't wanna do that? They did not want it to go on record, nor be printed in black and white that they actually saw the anti-blackness in their policies. They did not want that to be on record. And it was so evident in the room. As each one of the board members spoke, they were so careful with their words and slowly speaking, it's as if they all practiced. They had a a practice run on what actually this board meeting was going to be. And they definitely stuck to it. No one even mentioned anything close to anti-Blackness. When I was listening very carefully, it was like a plague had swept over the entire boardroom and it was a mind control, that they could not even think the word anti-Blackness. It was completely blocked out.
1: What happened was that Stephanie Wiggins, who I had admired, by the way, quite a bit, and felt that I had a real connection with, and who went out of her way to indicate she had a connection with us, gave one of these long, long reports, and, and we'll give it to you some other time, but the essence is, we don't have money for new buses. We don't have money for fare reductions. We don't have money for this. But I'm happy to say we went to Washington and I got this grant. I got that grant. I want you to know that the Build Back Better infrastructure bill is a big boondoggle. And we're going to get $3 million or $4 million or $5 billion or $600, 000, $600 million. We don't know how much yet, but we're in on the gravy chain. And don't worry, more money is coming from Joe, the anti-Black Biden. That was her report. And I kept waiting, OK, OK. And then in the end, you're going to say, I just want to say one thing besides all the good news. We have an anti-Black vote." I really did. And then she ended by saying, I'm great, you're great, and we're great. So that's what happened in story one. Channing, wanted to tell us a story about the vote on the police?
3: So one of the initiatives that were on the table was uh, item 25, which was to add an additional $75 million to the Metro policing budget. It's noteworthy to say that they had already had a vote just a few months ago, I think about three months ago, claiming that the police basically overran their budget and overspent their budget, and the contract is not up until June 2022. They wanted to pass back then a motion for $111 million. We fought them tooth and nail, and not just us, everyone in the city fought them tooth and nail and got that down to $36 million. And they passed that. We didn't want them to pass anything, let's be clear. But they passed $36 million, and they came back again, this time with $75 million. And every single board member, except for Holly Mitchell and Mike Bonin, voted for that. Um, Justifying it, saying that 25.1 is this new motion for transit ambassadors and half of the people don't feel safe with police and half of the people feel very safe with police and we think that this is a good compromise. It's all bull crap. Everyone voted for this initiative. To give 75 million more dollars to the police, except for Holly Mitchell, who abstained. My first thought was that was interesting. And what she said is that you have policing agencies that are overspending their budget and willfully overspending their budget, is the words that she used. And we are the enforcement arm of the of at least one of those police forces. And If we vote for this, we are signaling to them that it's okay. And they are out of control, and it's not okay, and we need to put a stop to it. In my opinion, I think she should have just voted no. Just be courageous, okay? Um, Lay down your body on the line is what we say in the movement. And I get it. You might not get elected again, whatever. But I think she had every ability to vote no on that. And I hope that she does vote no on the next time. Barbara, tell me your perception of the
1: meeting in general, things you saw with your eyes first or heard with your ears. And then we're going to move to what Channing and Barbara and I want to do about it. Each of us went to bed last night dreaming of things that would get us put in prison. So we took a step back and came up with what we could really do.
2: I tuned into the meeting with very high hopes with the work that we had done with our allies and in the streets, that uh, we knew that we had enough opinions and support from the general public. But going into that meeting from the very beginning, I went, uh uh-oh. As it started out, the meeting started out with people supporting the Bus Riders Union, saying it by name, saying, uh, please support the BREU's motion, And about the fourth person was interrupted. They stopped it. It was going too much toward us. We were were counting the number of people that were saying yes. And it was going too much in our favor. And they interrupted the meeting, interrupted a person in mid-sentence to say this item is going to be taken up in the CEO's report. So everyone that's on the phone that wants to talk about this, you need to get off and wait until the CEO's report. And then that continued uh, until the uh, CEO's report came up. If anyone even mentioned Bru or motion, they would turn they would turn the mic off. So it did, it did not get the, the people a chance. And of course, people started asking how long, how long? The meeting is going on and on and on, because they knew that was the de- that was a deliberate attempt for some people that had to go to work or do whatever they had to do, uh, ended up not speaking. And so that really put a damper. And as I had said before, the silence and the the short sentences that board members were giving on the items definitely signaled that the the concentration they were giving as to not mention BREU at all, not mention anything anti-Black at all. You know, I said, this too shall pass. We've come across this before. This tactic of the MTA trying to block us out has happened before. It hurt in the moment, but then I rallied back because it's not over. The fat lady has not sung yet.
1: So since she hasn't sung yet, what do you plan to do? What's the first thing that came in your mind? Uh, Voidious listeners, you have to understand that we are truly... Of the Joe Hill School of Don't Mourn Organize. So we have a setback, we feel bad, it's not like we don't feel hurt or depressed, momentarily even hopeless, and then we spring right back to all right what's the next move? So since me and Barbara and Channing have not yet met, where we always work out these things, what's the first next move you want to make Barbara?
2: You know the first thing that came to mind as I was listening and even the, the joy I had from the night before, which was a Wednesday, I went to, uh, I was asked, which is an honor, I was asked by Black Lives Matter to speak at one of their Wednesday's events. And what made the event so special was it was December 1st, 1955, when Rosa Park was arrested on the bus for not giving up her seat and just connecting it to t- public transportation and buses today, being there surrounded by the people that were rallying right with me. And even after coming after speaking, people coming up saying, I remember this and when is it? And everyone had a flyer. So one of the first things that I wanna do is make sure that I even strengthen my connections with the Black Lives Matter movement. This is happening on Wednesdays and I am definitely gonna dedicate more of my Wednesdays to coming out and participating with them on this action.
3: Janning, what's your New Year's resolution for revolution? I'm very optimistic, actually, because one thing I noticed is that the sheriff has a lot of power and he had lots of people call in. But we had just as many people call into that board saying, support the BRU and no police on Metro buses and trains and police don't keep us safe. And so in that vein, I think the board is drastically underestimating the work of the Bus riders Union. And my one hope is that we're gonna get thousands and millions of flyers into all of their communities with their face on it, get billboards made and let everyone know how anti-Black this board is.
1: So my last thought is that we need to uh, do what we call accountability campaigns for each member of the board who participates in anti-bus riders, anti-blackness, anti-Latinx, anti-women. So that would mean a Sheila Kuehl accountability campaign. It would mean a Janice Hahn accountability campaign, a Holly Mitchell, Mike Bonin, Mayor Garcetti, Hilda Solis. We need to really go in and look at their voting records, look at who they get money from, let them know that in East LA there's gonna be a Helva Solis accountability campaign. On the West side, I think that Sheila Kuehl has got away with murder. She is just uh, loved on the West side and that's because the West side doesn't care about black people. And we have to try to change that. So I think the the good thing about an accountability campaign is we're simply gonna tell the truth of everything. If they vote good, we'll say they vote good or well. If they vote bad. but we can't just talk about the MTA board, we have to break out each person. So I'll end by saying that we all do feel optimistic. Uh, Jenny indicated that in the middle of a long rambling monologue, Mayor Garcetti said, said, well, we do need free public transportation and actually the bus rides unit has been talking about this for 20 years and we should have listened. So that gets into the record. Mayor Garcetti, yes, you should have listened because he didn't care. But now move for a complete public transportation with no police on the trains and with no proof. Well, if it's free, you don't have to prove anything and get rid of the black codes. So we are on the ascendancy against a very powerful adversary that reflects every corporate interest in the city, and we need your help. If you're interested, write to Channing at the strategy who's the lead organizer of this campaign. Barbara at the That's Barbara Lott-Holland. CC so them both. They'll get back to you and you watch. We're going to do something important for the black community. We're not going to let this genocide continue. We do feel actually optimistic after having a rough day in the war and have to realize that we scored more blows than I understood at first. So this is Eric Mann, you're on Voices from the Front Lines. This was our two lead organizers, Channing Martinez and Barbara Holland, and myself, all of the Bus Riders Union, telling you the usual crimes and misdemeanors of the MTA board and our campaign of challenging anti-blackness is on the ascendancy. And we need your help. Say,
0: say I'm loud, say I'm clear For the whole round world to hear I wish I could share All the love that's in my heart Remove all the bars That keep us apart
4: With the South Central Third World News, I'm Ernesto Arce with voices from the front lines and news from South Central to the Global South. Civil rights and social justice groups continue to chip away at the official narrative surrounding a hike in violent crimes in Los Angeles. According to our recent LAPD report, crimes including homicides, which are up by 49% from before the pandemic, are rising. City officials and agencies gave numerous reasons for the uptick in violence, citing less aggressive policing and bitter gang feuds. But groups such as the Advancement Project say the figures are being politicized to support police funding and simply lack context. Dr. Georgia Leap, a UCLA urban researcher, says more policing and more incarceration would make things worse. With COVID, it has put all the struggles, the poverty, the underperforming schools, all of this on steroids. You have a lot of
5: people who are desperate to put food on the table. Yes, gang violence has gone up. There is no doubt about that. But we really need to see very specifically where has it gone up and just as as importantly, if not more so,
0: why has it gone up?
4: Sheriff Alex Villanueva, who is mindful of the calls for him to resign, has taken to using the rise in crime as a means of retaining power. He has blamed the rise on less cops, more crooks, less consequences. His solution? He created a unit that will process concealed carry permits faster. Meanwhile, the Los Angeles Police Protective League and ALADS, the unions representing LAPD officers and sheriff's deputies respectively, are making an aggressive push to promote police budgets while labeling defunding and abolish campaigns as outrageous and dangerous. Activists against police brutality are enraged over the latest police killing of a 61-year-old man in a wheelchair at a Walmart in Arizona. Local reports say that Walmart has condoned law enforcement actions inside its stores, including aggressively handcuffing and even shooting suspects. Police were called to the Tucson location after reports that Richard Lee Richards had stolen tools from the retailer and had brandished a knife when confronted by a security guard. In video footage that went viral on social media, Officer Ryan Remington and a partner are seen walking up to Richards and almost immediately shooting him nine times without physical provocation. Richards' lifeless body is then turned on its stomach and he is handcuffed. I have uh, friends and family that are police officers, Um, so when I see this, my emotions are are quick to race, but I'm slow to judge. But when I see the video, it's hard for me not to think about two things, Mm de-escalation and then excessive force. And it just seems like here's another situation where a police officer just went too far. I'm not saying I know all the details, but just at first sight. Remington has been fired for excessive use of force. National police brutality activists are calling for murder charges, and they want Walmart to stop encouraging violent police actions. A new report says that Latin America is facing unprecedented numbers of hunger and starvation. According to the UN's 2021 Regional Overview of Food Security and Nutrition, at least 92.8 million Latin Americans run out of food or had gone a day or more without eating in 2020. Hunger in Latin America and the Caribbean is at its highest point since 2000 after a 30% increase in the number of people suffering hunger from the previous year. During the coronavirus pandemic, the number of people living with hunger increased by 13.8 million. The numbers of hungry people in Latin America now stands at 9.1%, the highest it has been in the last 15 years, although slightly below the world average of 10%. African Union leaders are gathered in Addis Ababa to propose solutions to end fighting in Ethiopia after the UN warned that the risk of the East African nation spiraling into a widening civil war is only too real. Former Nigerian President Olusegun Obasanjo said that they hope to secure the withdrawal of troops that satisfies all the parties in the conflict. The UN estimates 400,000 people in the northern region of Tigray are living in famine-like conditions following a year of war. The latest conflict started in November 2020 when forces loyal to the Tigray People's Liberation Front seized military bases in Tigray. In response, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed sent more troops to the northern region, thousands have been killed, and more than two million have fled their homes. With the South Central Third World News segment of Voices from the Front Lines, I'm Ernesto Arce. Now back to Eric Mann and Channing Martinez in the studio.
0: I wish you could know what it means to be me. Then you'd see and agree that every man should be free. I wish I could say All the things that I should say Say them loud, say them clear For the whole round world to hear I wish I could share All the love that's in my heart Remove all the bars That keep us apart know what it means to be me, then you'd see and agree that every man should be free. I wish I could give all I'm longing to give. I wish I
1: could This is Eric Mann, the host of Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. In this segment, we're very excited. We have Scott Holison and Mike Cannon, who are leaders in UAWD, which I thought was United Order Workers for Democracy, but it's brilliantly Unite All Workers for Democracy. And they have won a hell of a victory, which is they have actually won a referendum of UAW members who are gonna support the direct election of their national officers. Now you may think, well, I guess that's good, but what's so good about it? Let me just say a couple of things before I get to Scott and Mike. The first thing to understand is before this, the system was called a delicate system. You would elect people in your district, in your, in your plant, and then they would go to usually Anaheim, California, allegedly representing you. These were almost always the most powerful people in the union anyway. They were the people, frankly, who were mainly in with the company, but were giving out a lot of bribes, favors to everybody, and were powerful forces. When you got to the UAW convention, as I did, the first thing you found out is, if you were not a delegate, you had to be a visitor, and you were behind this big wall, and you could not go talk to the delegates. But to my shock, Chrysler, Ford, and GM, executives were on the floor, handshaking with the delegates. But Victor and Sophie Ruther, who built the UAW, were prohibited from going on the floor. So let's be very clear that the direct election of delegates was not just democratic, but no one could explain how undemocratic the delegate system was. And if I may say how thoroughly corrupted those conventions were that I'll tell you more about some other time. We never thought we could win direct election of our officers and we're very proud of UAWD, of Scott and Mike and others for this amazing victory. So Scott, welcome to Voices from the Frontlands. And why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you actually won, what was what? just the facts of the situation and where you are now, and then we'll go back into some of the background.
6: Well, thanks, first of all, for having me on the, the show, Eric, and and I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to uh, tell this story. This is not a story of, of uh, Scott and Mike organizing. This is a story of a cast of uh, characters, and we got some real characters that, that are uh, you know helping to pull this all together. We have people in Unite All Workers for Democracy From California to Florida to Boston and all points in between, especially in Michigan and Kentucky. We have some uh, auto workers from all over, but we also have graduate workers uh, that have uh, been inspired by this movement for direct elections, for democracy in our union. This is a celebration for a whole lot of people. Uh, How'd you get it? How'd you get it? Well, we got it by organizing Uh, and you know that you say that and you really have no idea until you go and do it uh, about what that entails. When the corruption scandal broke, uh, we started looking into ways to use the Constitution to hold those accountable. The first thing we did was uh, file some charges against Gary Jones and and Vance Pearson uh, based on the the criminal uh, complaints against them. We started getting momentum with that, and we had it passed at six local unions. You needed 11 altogether under the Constitution to trigger a trial. And uh, when the news reported that, you know, we had gotten six already, and we had only been working on it for uh, about three weeks. And, uh, you know, at that point, the International Executive Board said, oh, holy, shit, we better do something. So they, they went ahead and filed the charges, and I know that we forced their hand. How does it turn into a referendum vote? Well, in the Constitution, uh, under Article 8, you can call a special convention, but it's a really heavy lift to do that. Uh, we, were, we started organizing for a special convention uh, to change the way we elect our international officers, officers to get direct elections and also to put more transparency in our in our uh, union. So we had started organizing around that resolution to call a special convention to change the way we elect our international officers. And we got to local unions passing this resolution representing about 60,000 members of the UAW. We needed about 80,000 members to trigger a referendum vote to call this special convention and uh, then COVID hit and they shut down all the union meetings and we were dead in the water. We kept organizing, but at that time, the the government decided that they were going to file a RICO suit uh, to wrap up their their investigation. Uh, And as part of that RICO suit, as part of the settlement, they came up with a consent decree Uh, where the UAW agreed to have a referendum of the entire membership to see if uh, the membership wanted to change the way we elect our international officers.
1: When you said you were dead in the water, every good organizer has been dead in the water at least 10 times, but we seem to resurrect. What was the resurrection like? Because trust me, Mike will tell you too, there's days where you think you're dead in the water and then you regroup. What was the big regroupment like? Well, the
6: regroupment was, you know, an opportunity that was presented to us. We couldn't pass the resolution for uh, the special convention, but because of the consent decree, we could continue to organize to win the referendum. And that's what we did. We started flyering. In fact, we had a week of action that coincided with the battle of the overpass. And we were on the... the, uh, the overpass at local 600 at the Ford Rouge plant, uh, passing out flyers and uh, trying to raise awareness of this referendum because the UAW uh, international executive board, the administration caucus was doing everything they could to keep it under wraps. Uh, They were not advertising it at all. Uh, They were not allowing this information to go out through the local unions we were the only ones that were really telling them what was happening, what was about to happen. And that I think was worked in our favor. Mike, I have a slogan, all power to the
1: long distance runners. This is Mike Cannon with whom I've worked (laughs) for. I can't even count it, Mike, but if you figure 1990, that's our 36th anniversary. So somewhere around there, Mike, you came into UAWD. In fact, I heard about UAWD mainly through your text to me. Come on, Eric, get moving, get moving. So you're a good organizer. How did you get involved? And how do you see it as a movement veteran? I got involved because
5: I was reading a newspaper about all this corruption going on in UAW. And they would interview Scott and other uh, local union members. And I found out through the newspapers that there's this new group called UAWD. Uh, Unite All Workers for Democracy, and um, so I started talking to a few UAW folks I know, and I, you know, these people, they're like, no, we don't know them at all, Uh, and I thought, well, you know, I think this is kind of group I want to get involved in. When I heard about the fact that they were taking on the job to uh, get enough uh, UAW locals to pass resolutions for a special convention, I thought, well, wait a minute. Now, this is the kind of group that I want to belong to, right? They're prepared to lift the heavy load to get to where they think the UAW should be. So I got in touch with them, and immediately we clicked, of course, because uh, of my involvement with New Directions from the 80s and 90s. And uh, and I just saw an opportunity where, well, maybe I could help them. I've got some knowledge about the UAW. I'm a retired... uh, UAW International Representative. I did that job for 24 years, so I know the UAW in and out, and I've been to like nine conventions. Been a member since 1970, so I said, "Well, maybe I can help them." So uh, that's I got in touch with them, and I, that's been two years ago, and I've been working with them ever since. Yeah, without a doubt.
1: Now, Mike, I know seriously that you're very modest, but because I want people to understand the value of making a lifetime commitment to the movement right what do you think is the main thing you contributed as a movement veteran that helped the movement now, and scott i'll be on i'm going to ask you the same question about mike
5: i was able to bring my experience in uh as an organizer and i was able to give give advice to them uh in terms of how how to organize people that you organize people around issues right and it's not a one conversation attempt, right? It's uh, Jerry Tucker, the, 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 I, I've served under Jerry Tucker for so many years, but he used to say, it's like Chinese water torture when you're organizing people. It's not <laughs> the, and, and really it's true. It's not the first <laughs> drop that drives the person crazy and it's not the last drop. It's all the drops in between. And so you have to keep going back to people And talking to them because people need time to process information and and fit it into their world and understand it and all that. So you continue to go back to people. So I was able to bring to them um, my organizing skills, which is persistence, right? And to package your your program in a way so that it's very easy for people to understand. You know, you don't have to struggle with it. You don't have to use big words. You try to use catchphrases and give them bits and pieces of information so that they can digest it and process it, right? And then you go back and give them more. So I tried to bring all the organizing skills that I had available to them. Um, and uh, I, think, I think I was able to help them in some
1: respects, yeah. Well, before we get to Scott, I'll tell you that I don't call it the water torture, but in my 16 qualities of a successful organizer, Number 15 is relentless. And I think what people don't understand about Mike, but I and don't understand about Scott and my friend Mark Masaoka, with whom I've worked, is you know, Scott, we used every break to talk to workers. Every lunch I talked to workers. After work, we had beers with guys and we would talk to them. They would say, damn, that Mark and Eric always want to talk. And people were happy about that, you know, that you didn't just talk to them once, but you were trying to build a relationship with them. And they knew that. And they said that these people care about, even at first I didn't agree with them, but they're not selling vacuum cleaners, they're selling freedom. And we got a lot of workers who came to respect us by believing in them, believing they had a chance to to change for the better. And once that starts, it gets to be like a steamroller. So, Scott, tell us about
6: Mike. Mike has brought uh, just a wealth of knowledge uh, and experience of of organizing. But I, I'd say uh, the most impactful thing that Mike brought is consistency. Right. We were kind of a hodgepodge uh, guys that just kind of were pissed off and and wanting to uh, create some change, but we didn't really know how to do it. We thought we could. Maybe do it part time, and uh, meet once a month or once every couple of weeks, and and right. uh, talk this through and go out and change the world. Well, Mike brought us uh, back to reality, and and he got us. Uh, you know, his first comment was, "Well, we need to meet twice a week." We uh, compromised to once a week, but that quickly turned into about five times a week, uh, with all the different tasks that we were trying to accomplish. Now, we didn't meet as a steering committee five times a week, but we would have once a week steering committee meetings and and then, uh, you know, text bank meetings, organizing committee meetings. We're trying to form an education committee, all the things that that, uh, needed to be done and in a short time to organize for this referendum that was, uh, frankly, coming up pretty quick. We thought we had a lot of time, but it turned out we didn't. And uh, every, uh, every moment, every meeting was, was precious. And and Mike taught us that on top of that, he has a knowledge of the inner workings of the union and the administration caucus that was uh, just worth its weight in gold. When we uh, you know, we're trying to uh, get some influence over the uh, the consent decree and trying to get some influence over the monitor, Mike knew exactly what, tactics the, uh, the administration caucus was pulling behind the scenes. And that helped us to uh, kind of navigate around those. You've won this amazing victory, but
1: now you simply have the right to elect your officials. But the administration caucus is in power, and they are the same forces that have caused all the problems in the union to start with, including the corruption. But that's not going to stop them from saying, all right, we have an election, let's sort of turn the screws on everybody now. And we're going to get reelected through the same process because they're smart and they're vicious. So it's an amazing victory, even though you're just winning. Have you begun to think about the next steps to victory? And I want you to end by asking or telling our listeners how they can get in touch with UAW.org, starting with going on UAW.org. But Scott,
6: what's the next move? Have you thought that far? We're uh, building power for the uh, convention, for one, because, you know, not only will we have a new way of electing officers, but we need to build some transparency into there. So the fact of the matter is that, you know, an election is, is nice, but what we need is informed voters and to have informed voters, you need transparency, so. We're going to use the fact that they've been able to negotiate contracts that were voted down by 90% uh, twice this year. That's great. Uh, Actually, three times because Volvo voted it down twice. That'll be one of the key organizing factors. But also, we need to be able to see into the inner workings of the international union. And to do that, we think we should have access to the financial reports this is how much we brought in. This is how much we spend. This is how much we got left. You know, we want some details and we want it more often than the once a year in the LM two report or or once a year in the solidarity magazine. So we need quarterly reports. We need, uh, we need to have access, better access to the uh, minutes of the executive board meeting so that uh, people can make an informed decision.
1: Mike, what's the next move in your mind? organizing
5: continues, you know, a matter of fact, we have to rev it up now, right? This is a golden opportunity. We got this, uh, got this great victory. So there's a bounce that we, that we get from this victory, our website tonight to go crash because of so many people trying to get on it. Right. So we got to use this as an opportunity to organize even more so for the convention, because we have a convention in July, July, 2022. And, um, uh, we're going to, uh, discuss uh, the language that's going to go into the Constitution that codifies the uh, direct election in the UAW, right? Comes becomes the law of the land. Um, so we're going to do that, uh, organize. But, you know, we started weeks ago, and we put together a win or lose strategy. If we lost the referendum, we still had a strategy. It was not going to stop us. We're just simply going to, you know, shift into a new gear, right? And so we're going to organize, we're going to talk to people over the coming months. We have a poll that, that members can take on our website, UAWD.org. We're, we're asking everyone to go in and fill out the poll form because we want to hear your ideas. We want to know what is it that you want this UAW, what we now call the new UAW, to look like going forward, okay? So we want your ideas on that. So go to UAWD.org. And uh, give us your ideas. And uh, we're reaching out. We're doing phone banking Uh, to reach out to people, to talk to them, get their ideas, get them to join UAWD. And we're going to build this moving up
1: uh, even further than we have today. It's ironic, Mike, because I teach something called Where's the Bounce? Because I made a mistake once where I had a big rally and I did not know my next move. So, everybody was so excited. They came up to me. Now, what are we doing? And I was so busy doing the rally. I said, I don't know. They said, Well, we're all here now. And I lost them. I had to get them back. So, now I learned you have to have a bounce from every victory. So, it's funny you use the same word. Right? So, the point, Scott, is you got a senior person with you now. And as a senior organizer, and you are too, by the way, having won this victory, there is a tendency in movements to have lulls where people will say, congratulations, right on, right on. Oh, wait a minute, we gotta still meet? Oh, we still gotta work harder, but we won. And you said, no, no, you just won a step towards the biggest step. And even if there's a momentary ad with some people, you gotta get them back right away. And I think you know that. And just, I, I'd like to add, count me in on the next round if you'd like me to work with you, because. You'll be an honor to be part of this campaign. You're doing nothing but great. So that was Scott Hollison and Mike Cannon. How do they reach you? And you're allowed to ask what you want people to do to help you.
6: So you can reach us on our website, uh, UAWD.org. We have a Facebook page, Unite All Workers for Democracy. Uh, And you can uh, email us at uawdemocracy at gmail.com. So those are three good ways to uh, reach us. And while you're at uawd.org, fill out the uh, survey that Mike was talking about. And when you put your uh, contact information into there, we will interact with you. We will uh, send you text messages and, and reply to your answers be a part of this change that's that's coming uh, our way. Uh, you know, this is, like you said, the very first step towards winning a better union together. And that's what we really need to do. You know, nobody does this alone. We need to do it with the membership of the UAW. That's the way that we're going to improve our union and build it back stronger than it ever was. Do you accept contributions? Uh, we do. There's a There's a donate. Uh, button on there uh, when you go to our website. And there's uh, also a join button. So if you're a UAW member and you're listening to this uh, join, uh, it's only 25 bucks a year to, uh, to be a member of UAWD. And we, uh, we put that money to good use, uh, you know, with our, our organizing. You know, we sent out 75,000 flyers uh, all across the, the country, another 75,000 postcards, and those were not cheap. I can, I can guarantee you that.
1: All right. Well, the voice you heard is Scott Holdison. The other voice you heard is Michael Cannon. This is Eric Mann, UAW Local 645, saying congratulations, brothers. Keep up the fight. And for voices, listeners, please go on UAWD.org. Learn about their work. Find ways that you might want to help them. Because this is a historic moment. They already won, but they got a lot of victories ahead of them. They could carry yourself, brothers. We'll be in touch. Thank,
0: Thank you so much. Clear. Thanks for having us here. And so I got to face the final curtain, good curtain. Friends, I'll say clear and state my case. Of which I'm certain, I believe.
1: So, pretty amazing show, everybody. want to thank Barbara Lott-Holland and Channy Martinez for leading the struggle for Black liberation, along with Black Lives Matter, our close allies. want to thank Scott Polison and Mike Cannon of UAWD. Check them out at UADWD.org. And always check us out at VoicesFromTheFrontLines.com. Click on, listen to our podcast every week. Take good care of yourself and all power to the people. Take it, Nina.
0: to be me